Jeff Ward with Dirt LLC. Dirt LLC with two T's, D-I-R-T-T. Tell me about Dirt with two T's. What, what is it an acronym for, and what is it you guys do in the oil and gas world? So Dirt stands for doing it right this time. And basically, we are a directional drilling company and a remote operations company for directional drilling. Remote drilling, that's kind of a new term, but it's an old term as well. Uh, I understand we've been doing it for 30 years approximately, especially on the offshore rigs. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the business and the history uh, when it comes to remote drilling and why it's more mainstream than ever. Uh well, I mean, if you look at one of the first business cases ever done for remote operations was actually with NOV in 2004 when they drilled a well off the coast of West Africa uh, from Cambridge, England. And um, uh, the company I was with at the time had just uh, been bought uh, by Varco and Varco and NOV merged, so I was exposed to that uh, quite early in, uh, in the 2000s as to what you could do. Uh, based off of that uh, over the years. There's been various types of remote operations that have been done. Somberger has got entire rigs in South America that you can you can remote drill from at, at various uh, ways with the advent of rotary steerable and its popularity, being able to tie into the pump system you can drill remotely, which is being done by all the majors, as probably as well as the top uh, tier two companies like Phoenix and Scientific Drilling. So. Uh, I think it's just something that you need to take a look at uh, based on where oil prices are right now and any way that you can provide the technology to drill a better well as well as reduce men on location and put them elsewhere and try to get their talents spread over a larger cross-section of rigs. Uh, you have a winning formula. I just got off the phone with the Dallas Federal Reserve. We have them on every single year around this time to talk about uh, just the state of energy and their survey. They just got done with their quarterly survey. And the reason for it is that people do a lot of budgetary planning, you know, near the end of the year. And this remote drilling, it sounds to me like it's, it's getting to that point to where the educational curve has kicked in, the educational timeline, the process is soaked in. There's more and more come uh, of this remote drilling happening is, is what I'm getting at. And it sounds to me like it's become a cost-saving uh, opportunity or uh, component, if you will, for a lot of the producers. Um, where, where are you guys at with that as far as the educational process goes and also the cost efficiency? Because to me, the, the, that is what I've been hearing over the past year when it comes to the remote drilling. Are those two things are the leading cause on why more and more companies are doing this? I, I think if you look at it from a cost perspective, um, you probably would be at a wash. Um, getting two people off location for internal costs for a directional company and getting them into a war room to cover rates uh, or to cover rigs at, at, a, at a better spread, like let's say you get one DD or one MWD to be able to cover one to four rigs or maybe as, as high as seven, depending on what the drilling program looks like. That does present a savings because you're really lowering your cost per rig on your labor and um, reducing your overall burden rate. But if you look at what you need to do to support it, it's a quite a heavy investment to be able to do that. Um, I, I would say for the first couple of years, you'd be at a dead wash for the service provider. But 
if you look at what you can do with, with the drilling software that's out there today, as well as the remote MWD operations that you're able to do, uh, your spread rate will start decreasing over, or your spread cost will start decreasing over time. And, and it's well worth doing. And I think from a safety perspective, if you look at all the things that can happen in the North American market driving to and from the rig, or what can happen on the rig, it becomes paramount to try to, re- try to restrict uh, the amount of incidences that you have out in the field. And, and if, I think if you look at it from both those standpoints, it becomes everything to you. You know, protect your people, get the talent to spread over a couple of extra rigs, and, and reduce your overall reduce your overall HSC exposure uh, in the field. It seems to me that the trend is that more and more producers are going remote drilling. Um, I kind of said that in the previous question, and um, I guess I is is that a is that a fact fact? Because I, I think it is from what I've heard and what the data I've seen is that more and more companies are going to remote drilling, and it has to do with you know, just the whole education and efficiency and, and, and a number of different things. Is that is that true, though? I think on the service side, you're seeing some hesitation. Uh, I, we have identified 14 different companies that offer a remote drilling service right now, a remote operations center. Um, and uh, I think it's the way of the future and the way that the operator itself, themselves are going to be able to force uh, what's going to happen in the next five years. It's just a natural progression of a business. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think the entertainment by the operator, whether it's a huge company like a Chevron or Exxon, uh, down to uh, a smaller one that, that's just getting started out, the remote operations gives them a ton of exposure to what's going on in the well because they can dial in and see exactly what's happening besides what the EDR data is showing. And I think you'll see them push that more and more and everybody eventually will be forced to. Yeah, I just, for me, a lot of times it's hard for me to see the forest from the trees, if you will. And I've just, within the industry, seen so much more and heard so much more on remote drilling. Sometimes I got to go and ask my my friends outside of the industry and say, hey, what are you hearing about the energy industry these days? And just to see what they come back with. And a few of them have asked me, actually, without me engaging with them, they've asked me about remote drilling. And these are financial guys who are, you know, trying to speculate and, you know, day trade and do all that other fun stuff that I do nothing, have nothing to deal with. But they did ask me a couple questions about remote drilling in the past few months, which made me realize that the the remote drilling phrase, the term, the the niche industry, if you will, seems to be getting a little mainstream play, and you know, and and so are, are you seeing that too? I guess I don't know. Are are you in the forest too? Can you step out every now and then? Or, or is, the trend is there, like you said. I think it is the wave of the future, and I think that's kind of what's controlling the narrative of that mainstream talk. Do do you know what's kind of penetrating out into the mainstream when it comes to the remote drilling? I think if you look at it from an operator oil company perspective, that's just going to be part of, of what they ask for in their bid process. I think in 2020, you're going to see uh, that be a line item that they do when they go to an RFP, just like they used to ask for triple and quad combo or resistivity. I think it's, it's that close to becoming a mainstay in our business. That's pretty incredible. Uh, talk to me about labor opportunities on this. The first thing that pops into my head is, is that 
you know, there was a study done and I can't remember by who or what the numbers were, but it was a heck of a lot of people involved with every single, you know, every time you drill, there's a certain amount of people associated with that well pad or well site. And, and remote drilling makes me think, will, will that impact that at all? Do, do you know what I'm talking about with that study? And, and do you know, understand the question? Do you follow that? Yes, sir. Um, I saw one in Canada when I was still living up there by one of the associations, whether it was CADC or, or AADE, one of, one of those did that. And they said it was about 125 people or jobs were supported by one drilling rig in a location. And that stems right down to to hotels uh, being able to employ additional personnel for the restaurant or cleaning the rooms, uh, down to gas station attendants, the whole nine yards. That one of those rigs would support that that um, those different types of jobs. Never mind the core jobs that you have on the rig itself. And if you look at what a rig crew looks like right now, largely, if you have a directional job on location, you might have a five-man crew on the rig, you have a tool push, a company man, you have two DDs, two MWDs, and perhaps a mud logger engineer that are staying on that rig full-time with various services coming in and out at all times. If you look at remote drilling and what it does, really all we're doing right now due to the comfort level in the industry is replacing two people. So we're, we're keeping two out of the four people on the directional side on location, um, you could conceivably go down to nothing, and there are companies that are doing it. Um, but the fact remains that even if you take get rid of uh, a couple of people in the rig and, and put them in a war room or in a remote operations center in town, those ancillary jobs that are supported largely aren't affected. I, I would say that you might see something, um, a little bit reduction in a grocery store for people not buying groceries. But again, I mean, if they're still working, you're still doing that at home you're largely not affecting the economy at all or the support jobs that are required uh, for for the drilling rig itself. I mean, if you look at the life cycle of the, of the well itself, the drilling component and the directional drilling component probably only accounts to 4 to 6% of the total time spent on that well. And uh, with, with that in mind, I, I think it's negligible to see any reduction in, in any of the other services. Well, I, I look at the other side of it, too, with the, the ripple beating into the white collar jobs. And, and one sure. of the things that doesn't get talked about very often that I like to talk about is that America is, is become a very white collar society. We're, we're very much a thinking society. We're, we're high school educated, college educated. Uh, two-thirds of the planet's attorneys reside in America. I mean, just things like that. And so when you're talking about technology and innovation like this, that, that does create a lot of uh, white-collar uh, opportunity. And, and I don't mean that to be, you know, you know, class warfare or anything like that, but it's just that that's kind of the reality of it is that, you know, to do a lot of these uh, technological things that involved software and, and – uh, inner space and Wi-Fi, you know, you got to have a four-year four degree or a six-year or eight-year or specialized training. And so it does create that kind of that environment as well. Have you thought of that, that it does kind of, you know, create more opportunity on that that side of the, the job opportunities, if you will? I think you're, you're dead on in your assessment and, uh, and, and what's happening right now in our world in the U.S. today. 
I think there's another thing that we have not considered. Um, every time we, that we have a downturn, we lose a lot of people that will never come back. And you end up with a core group of people that have lived through ups and downs. I don't know about you, Jason, but I think this is my fifth one or sixth one since I started um, working on the drilling rigs in college. And those people that you lose is talent lost, and they never come back. So while we, we have a downturn right now, we've lost, what, close to 179 or 180 rigs uh, uh, since the beginning of the year. How many of those people are actually going to come back uh, and go to work again and change their lifestyle all over again and, and re-enter the industry? I don't think it's going to happen like we hope it will. So you, you have your statement, which I 100% agree with, but this is also a way to be able to attract talent um, in a downturn and keep them working and, and try to combat the attrition. We're going to hit it. We know that we're going to hit it. We saw it in the last downturn in 2014, how much talent we lost, and a lot of forced retirements out of both the oil industry and the services side that we have to address. So really the name of the game right now to me is, is what you're talking about, about people wanting to be more white collar. It's a natural career path for a field guy that maybe wants to work in a war room and not be on the rig anymore, although I think that's few and far between. There's a lot of field guys that love being in the field, but we also have to start addressing the talent gap. So to me, it's a good career path as well for bringing young people into the industry who have the technical background, are used to computers. I remember my son's 10 years old now. When he was three, he could manipulate a tablet and play Angry Birds in a heartbeat. Well, I didn't even know how to do that yet. And you take those people that are used to this type of technology, get them out in the field with some experience and show them a career path to get them into a remote operations center and, and take on more responsibility. You're from Canada. How long did you uh, do energy activity up in Canada? Started when my hockey career went absolutely nowhere and I knew I had no idea what to do. I started working on the rigs in 1992 to pay for my college. Did you say hockey? Yeah. I was I, I was good, but not good enough. Like most Canadian kids, you think you're going to make a career out of it, and you have to make a lifestyle and, and career change, and I didn't know what to do. So I literally started working on the drilling rigs to pay for my college up in Canada. That's crazy. I, I had yeah. a similar story. When you said that, I, I phrased things very much the way you did with baseball. I uh, Yeah. Oh, I was a I was pro baseball, this and that, and everything. Ended up having two pro tryouts, and um, I'll never forget the one for the Atlanta Braves. And it was something like ninety-seven of us were invited to this tryout. Okay, and out of those ninety-seven, one of them made it to their minors, and I thought, oh, jeez, <laughs> wow, that's. That, yeah, that's that, they don't want you at all, man. I mean, like that was wow. that's a that just showed me how hard it was to make it to that next level. I mean, they only took one person out of ninety-seven of the people that you know were there all day, yeah. and yeah, and so it was kind of, it was a reality check for me. Anyway, um, so you have a, a Canadian experience, and then now, how long have you been in the states uh, doing doing remote drilling and and doing regular drilling and and that sort of thing? So I, moved, I got moved down with a directional drilling company in 2014. Uh, I've actually been working in the U.S. probably 90% of my career since 2004 has actually been working in the U.S. from Canada. So this was the first time we had ever moved. Um, I did probably 25% of my directional experiences in Canada, and the 75% has been down here. 
Okay, and the reason I took this very long path to get to this question is uh, talk to me about your observations between the just the environment when it comes to energy. Uh, I often hear how just night and day the way Canada treats uh, regulations and environment when it comes to the oil and gas companies, and then, of course, in a state-by-state state in America. So do, just what, what, what's your thoughts on the way that the two different con- countries approach it? I think up until, let's say, mid-2000s, um, it was largely the same. There was probably a few more environmental regulations for the oil company uh, at present because Canada values uh, that uh, in, in their laws, and it's something you just have to comply to. The biggest change that I saw um, was, was actually two things. Uh, one, I saw uh, like the drilling rigs and, and um, service companies start getting heavily regulated by the, comp- by, uh, the government, and they almost started getting unionized. Um, when I worked on the drilling rigs, I started as a leasehand, worked my way up to Derrick, and then tried to make a career after college. Uh, basically, it was just being promoted uh, when they felt that you were doing a good enough job and, and competent enough to be able to handle it. Now you have in Canada, and I don't know about here on the drilling side, but they actually ended up setting certain amount of hours you had to be as a lease and certain amount of hours you needed to be as a roughneck, pass these competencies, take these courses uh, in order to be able to move on. So that became much more regulated uh, and much faster than, than down here in the U.S. Now, the second thing that I've always found that was very interesting uh, up until I would say 2010, uh, when you're coming out of the, the downturn in a weight, is Canada was largely ahead of the U.S. in technology and and drilling development in general. PDC bits came out faster. Um, you know, Packer assemblies for horizontal wells came out there first. And you could always say to yourself, Canada and Norway really were the drivers of technology in the oil industry, and it fed everywhere else. Um, in a step change format over time to the U.S. or Mexico or, or Africa or wherever you want. And that was strictly due to the short drilling season. You had to do way more in five months than you could down here in a year because up there in Canada, it gets so wet, you can't drive on the roads. The roads are owned by the wirehousers of the world and they fine you a million dollars a mile. You just would not move drilling rigs to be able to pay those fines. So we used to see massive technology step changes in our business in Canada that we, you would see eventually get filtered everywhere else. In 2010, that really changed. And it, it, it really was as, as de- desperation caused invention. And when you saw the first downturn that really impacted oil and gas down here for the drilling side, you saw really big improvements in technology very quickly, whether it was Schlumberger doing it, any of the big four or small companies with a new idea. They had to find a way to make money in a really bad environment. And now you don't see any difference whatsoever between any of the North American market as far as who develops what technology first. And to me, that's been the biggest thing that I've noticed. The regulations in the U.S. have come along. I can't give you a comment whether it's largely the same or or still a little bit different between Canada and the U.S., but I do notice the technology is, is borderless now. And you don't see a big lag in, in usage of that technology um, from either country. Both countries adopt it very quickly. And that's been the most amazing thing to me. wanted to kind of just uh, give a little context to your environmental background because 
we've been following the rise of the environment, uh, environmentalist, um, to where we've <laughs> last year started actually calling a cult by its actual legal anthropological term and Webster's dictionary term. Um, and we can get into that if we'd like, but, uh, just wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned that remote drilling is going to be in a lot of bids in 2020. And, and I do agree with you that the trend has gotten to that point. The educational process has gotten to the point that numbers have shown what they've shown. So a lot of companies who are not already doing that are going to in 2020. Where do you think that the environment, the, the, the environmentalists are going to come into uh, those boardrooms and those meeting rooms and those budgetary meetings? You know, here I'm, I'm talking to a guy who's been trying to get a, 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 a plant up for two years, they've been dealing with court battles and that's because of environmental groups. So that is prolonged, you know, their construction on a facility for two years now and they've won every single one of the court battles, but at the same time, they still got to go through the process and everything like that. Do you understand my question? Am, am I, you know, as far as the impact that the environment now is having in the day-to-day -day expenses of in energy companies? Yes, sir. I, I think the question to pose back to everybody is what makes you think we haven't been dealing with this for years? If you look at what's been going on, let's just take the uh, pipeline, TCPL's pipeline, for instance. I mean, that's been delayed over and over again. It finally got pushed through here in the last couple of years with the Trump election. But Canada and the U.S. have been dealing with these environmental impacts for decades, I would say. Um, whether or not that we're recognizing it more is probably a better question to ask. But from my standpoint, if you look at all the environmental impact awareness that we have, you see BP putting out these environmental assessments. Exxon does all these commercials for the last five years about how they're going green. Um, you could say, for instance, that remote drilling is actually going green because you're having less environmental impact on the on the rig site. I mean, all this stuff has been looked at and discussed and dealt with and put in courts for years. If you look at our Native American population in, in the U.S. and Canada, they've got lawsuits on 150% of the land in North America. So, I mean, all that stuff has been dealt with and adjusted to accordingly for decades, in my opinion. So whether or not you've seen the exposure of that becoming more prevalent because our media is actually handling that and using that and pushing it to the forefront largely doesn't change what we've all been dealing with for, for multiple years now. This is not a new thing. And I think if uh, we had a little bit better direction uh, from our leaders in our, in our industry, uh, it, it probably wouldn't be as big of a thing now as it, uh, as it should be, but it is. But if you look at what oil companies have dealt with, uh, over the years, I, I don't see much difference in change other than exposure in the media. You mentioned that you could even argue that uh, remote drilling is involved in the environmental talk. Go, go a little further with that, because that, that's actually the next question I had for you was, you know, is, is there a part of your business that is, you know, environmental friendly or can be perceived that way or the energy companies can look at it and say, hey, remote drilling helps us be uh, more eco this, that, or anything else. In my business, back when we could say we used recycled paper, everybody made sure they had that logo in their, in their magazine. You know what I mean? Is, is Absolutely. It, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Flesh that eco side out a little bit. 
Well, I think if you look at remote drilling where you reduce people on location, you're reducing the environmental impact uh, at the rig site. I mean, it might be small, but it's a step change that you can talk to. Um, I think a lot of it is, is perception and what that means. I mean, if we have somebody in our remote operations center that they go to a job like every day, um, you're, you're really keeping that environmental uh, impact off the rig and, and you're keeping them close to home and and um, you're utilizing technology on a computer, which is, I would say, fairly green. And um, at, at the end of the day, that, that might be an attractant to oil companies as well to, to, to push their green program is reducing people in the field. And, and that always has that, whether it's, you know, putting wear, extra wear and tear on the roads or, or, or that thing. There's some things that you're never going to avoid. You're still going to have to build a lease. You're still going to have to drill the well. We're still an oil-driven economy. And, we're, and we always will be for a very long time, um, regardless of what you see come out for electric vehicles or solar or wind or what have you. We're oil driven. And while we keep talking about um, the demand not being as great as we want to, demand still climbs every year. So that's never going to change. But if you can get people off the rig and you, you get them in a place that they can go to every day, you're, you're incrementally decreasing the environmental impact over time by the number of rigs that you take on and add to your program. Final thoughts. Uh, anything we missed? Anything you want to reiterate? If you got a good chili recipe, feel free to share that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I wish, just dude. like to give a guest the final, <laughs> final floor, if you will. That way the question's not framed by me. So uh, go ahead. No, I, I just think that if you look at today's age and where we are, um, I think people need to remember uh, one solid fact about what we do in our business, and you're obviously involved with that. Uh, our, our business drives technology everywhere, and and remote drilling is an add-on to that and utilizing current systems. But if you look at Calgary in the 90s getting fiber optic cable to be able to handle well data from, from remote locations so you didn't have to go in there, right down to how IBM catered to the oil companies to be able to allow them to, to run bigger and bigger programs. Um, our business drives this te technology across the world. I mean, it, it's taken off in its own way, shape, and form. But the things that we do have lasting impact elsewhere. And I think you've got to remember that, all these, all us people that are out here uh, uh, doing the work that a lot of people don't like or respect. We do good work for, for the rest of the world, and we're proud of it. And I think it's worth saying that once in a while that uh, – we do everything we can to help this country and, and our people.